This is an ABC podcast. How good is Australia? A shameful and pathetic attempt. We are responding to the drought. If Pauline Hanson comes out and announces it, it's not that she developed the policy, it's not that she drove the agenda, we did. That is such a bubble question. I'm just going to leave that one in the bubble. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Fran Kelly from ABC Insiders. And I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RN Drive. Fran, it's fair to say that the spotlight this week has been on drought, but then all the associated internal, I don't know what they are, fights over the handling of this issue. We should be talking about drought. Farmers are experiencing the worst drought in recorded history. We're seven years into this drought. Um, Rural and regional Australia is suffering and the question is what more can the governments do to alleviate pain and to keep these rural communities uh, surviving, really, and farmers on the land. And so what we're seeing now as the government tries to take control of this again is the National Party's come up with a few ideas this week, PK. The NFF has come up with ideas of their own. Both involve quite a lot of money and also, as you say, a fair bit of politicking, particularly within the Nats and within the coalition. Um, Political point scoring and allegations, accusations really, between the coalition partners, the Libs and the Nats. So there was a huge blow up in the National Party room over the handling of lots of different issues. You know, there was even talk about whether Bridget McKenzie, the deputy leader of the Nationals, would be rolled. Uh, she was not rolled. Now everyone's locking in saying she's not going to be rolled. But either she's way... She's not going to be no. rolled, right? I mean, uh, she was never going to be rolled. No, but it does speak to, I think, a broader issue, which is internally there is disquiet and there is unhappiness. And, mm. you know, it's not leaking accidentally. Uh, the leaks have been full, fulsome this week, Fran, in relation to the Nationals and their frustration. You know, then we got Barnaby Joyce, who really is the backstory here, uh, speaking on the record about some of that disquiet. We drive an agenda. We do so much work in a space. Uh, then, obviously, if Pauline Hanson comes out and announces it, it's not that she developed the policy. It's not that she drove the agenda. We did. That's really at the heart of this, isn't it? That is at the heart of the internal tensions between the coalition partners at the moment. Barnaby Joyce has been really out and about everywhere to make the point that they've been a dutiful coalition partner, they've been doing the policy work. This is the big message the Nats are trying to get out to their electorates. We're doing the work for you. We are representing you. We are developing these policies. And they're really getting upset because we've had a few examples in the last couple of weeks of these policies being announced without the Nats getting the glory. The the thing that really, really annoyed them this time, and that was part of that big blow up with Bridget McKenzie in the party room, was that the government handed to Pauline Hanson and One Nation the glory for an inquiry into the dairy industry. Now, the Nats, particularly the Queensland Nats, have been working and calling for this dairy inquiry. Bridget McKenzie was saying, yes, we're going to get to it, but it can't be rushed. We've got too many things going on at the moment. And then suddenly, lo and behold, Pauline Hanson gets the glory for it. This has really angered them, not just because they want the glory, but because, you know, the Nats in some of these seats are in a fight to the death with One Nation. If, If One Nation gets the credit for providing things like support for dairy farmers, 
then how's the NAP going to hope to go to an election and get re-elected? But it's not just that. It's also, we talked last week about the Prime Minister announcing an extension of farm household assistance on radio when the Nats were all gathered in a courtyard to make the same announcement. How embarrassing. It's also the Prime Minister announcing a dam when really that should have been left to the National Party leader and the local Nat member to do that. It's about the Prime Minister kind of climbing all over their territory, really, because he has branded himself as the Prime Minister for drought, and they're saying, well, hang on, we're doing all the policy work and we're not getting the glory. Something is wrong here. That's right. And what I find really interesting about the national story is it's not actually just about Queenslanders, and that's where it gets more interesting. Like, for instance, we're recording this on a Thursday morning. There's a story out saying that furious nationals have lashed Matthias Corman for being too yeah. cosy in his relationship with Pauline Hanson. And it quotes, you know, again, leaks uh, Darren Chester. Now, Darren Chester is a very urbane kind of guy. Like he's, you know, he's Victorian and that makes him very different to some of the Queenslanders and yet he's mm. frustrated, right? Oh, his quotes were dynamite. I mean, he said of Matthias Corman, he puts a deal before everything in the Senate and they just accused him of showing us no respect. I mean, this is a very bad dynamic in the coalition. The Nationals are now demanding an extra $1.3 billion to be spent on drought-affected communities. Now, they've decided very strategically to put out their 10-point plan that <laughs> Barnaby Joyce has gone out and argued for to try and take the running on this and get political ownership before Mm. the government does announce next week uh, a package on drought, which it will, right? Yeah, I I think it won't be next week. I think ERC meets next week to decide it and they'll probably announce it, you know, a week after that or something. But, yes, before the government announces, the Nats wants everyone to know, hey, this is what we've called for, this is our plan. It won't be their plan necessarily. It'll be a little bit of their plan and a little bit of someone else's plan, but it will be money, but again, hundreds of millions of dollars and the Nats so, say, we won it. There's so many layers to this story because you've got the backbenchers now, that's what Barnaby Joyce is mm. and, and others, trying to take the political running on this because their leadership, people like Bridget McKenzie and Michael McCormack, aren't. I just think that's kind of weird, isn't it? Well, I think it's the dynamic where you've got the so-called best retail politician in the Nats party room doing the running on it. Is it the wrong tactic by Barnaby Joyce? Probably no, it's not. It's probably the right tactic because the Prime Minister is going to make this announcement. We all know there's a drought funding announcement coming, particularly for communities, an extension of those you know, community grants programs, which is exactly in line with what the Nats are arguing for. So why shouldn't they be part of the ownership of it. I would think this was a clever strategy by Michael McCormick to use Barnaby Joyce to get it out there if I thought that's what it was, but I don't. (laughs) I don't think it is at all. Um, But yes, it would be, but it's not. The thing is, I think kind of tensions in all parties is the theme of the week because we've also had tensions about Scott Morrison's leadership within his own party, the fact that he operates almost like a one-man band, people not necessarily happy with his management style, Fran. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And it was all very well for Scott Morrison to win the election that way, which, you know, as we spoke ad nauseum through that campaign is exactly what he did. I think it's something we will see change because it is untenable in the long run. Yeah, look, we all know that successful leaders manage their parties. They manage their backbenches. And that's kind of key, really, to success. Look at what happened to Kevin Rudd when
when he used to get his chief of staff to talk to the backbenchers, yeah. not himself. The, it does not end well. People do not like it. It's not the way to manage a party. Although I think it's worth saying that my understanding is that there's actually a different level of relationship between Scott Morrison and the new MPs, right? He really works the new MPs, the ones that won mm. under his leadership. Uh, there's even a WhatsApp group just for the new MPs. It's all about managing them and uh, and making sure they're on, on side because they, they didn't think they were going to win. They didn't think they were mm. going to be in government. So they feel like they owe him. That's interesting, isn't it? We've seen this before, uh, stretching back to 1996, when John Howard had that victory and got a whole swag of new MPs in, including a whole swag of women, which he was exceedingly proud of. And he maintained a special relationship with those 96ers. Jackie Kelly, for instance, who won Lindsay in the by-election, you know, particularly close relationships between those ones who came in under John Howard. And part of it goes to loyalties because it means, of course, some of the ones who were there before, say, Scott Morrison won this election, you know, had loyalties to past leaders, Tony Abbott or Malcolm Turnbull. So these ones who came in now, they've only got allegiance to him. He's going to nourish that. He's going to nourish it because ultimately they're going to be his lieutenants in the future. Let's just touch on the Labor leadership because that's been been a bit of an issue this week too, with people seeming a little frustrated that Anthony Albanese hasn't hit the ground running. Lots of frank talk inside of the Labor Party about Anthony Albanese. My view is he's not going to be given the kind of leeway that Bill Shorten was because the party's so bruised by being too disciplined that now Anthony Albanese is going to get sort of the worst of that. Yeah, you're probably right. I mean, they're a very unhappy group. They're very grumpy. Some of them are still mourning. I think a lot of them are still mourning. Um, And they're looking around for someone to, you know... Blame blame and get cranky at. It's a very difficult job, I think, to be a a leader of the opposition after a loss like that because Labor has been, you know, we've talked about this before, PK, it did the policy running for six years, really, certainly for five of the last six years, and it's used to being the front runner. And Anthony Albanese looks around and goes, well, that didn't work so well. Uh, That really hurt us. We've got to take a step back. I mean, they can't just reinvent their policy self in six months. So how do you land a blow? Scott Morrison is a canny political strategic player and tactical player and he knows how to really make the most of Labor's flummoxing and talking about sort of panic and indecision and trying to brand Albanese as an indecisive leader. It would be wrong of Anthony Albanese or any leader, I think, to come in in the party in that state and said, OK, we're going to do it this way because they need to have a time to grieve and mourn and come back together and sort themselves out and learn the lessons. But it's very difficult politically for them why they do that because they're kind of like treading water. Is there a real threat that Anthony Albanese would be rolled before the next election? Well, I don't see how after the indecision, though, I mean, after the revolving leadership door of both parties of the last 10 years, why a party would suddenly think that was a good idea again, Patricia? Mm, Because, Fran... They change leaders and they've won. <laughs> Disunity hasn't meant death. Well, unity act? didn't mean victory. That was the thing, right? That's right. They were very united I'm, and disciplined I'm under not Bill Shorten and they didn't win. he will go, but I know people that even want him to succeed say he's got 18 months to prove himself and they're people who support him. Mumblings about the leadership within the Nats. Now we're talking about rumblings about the Labor leadership. To be having rumblings six months after an election, I just think is crazy talk. Cuckoo. <laughs> Phil Curry, political editor of the Australian Financial Review. Welcome to the party room again. How's Canberra? Uh, just rocking, Patricia, rocking. 
No, actually, it's not. I've everyone here is in a vile mood. The entire parliament's in a very bad mood. Um, it's been a, a long year. <laughs> As you know, I spent last week there and I went away and I came home and my partner said, what's wrong? I said, everyone's traumatised there. It's the most miserable place I've been to. It is, and it's even and was worse I right? than it was last week. Yeah, you, you were right and it's even worse this week and I hold grave fears because there's one more sitting fortnight scheduled for next month. If I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times this week. I just can't wait for Christmas is, is the uh, common refrain around this building. And yeah, everybody's running on fumes, basically. I, I, I can't hear great howls of sympathy from the public, but that is explaining <laughs> that is explaining what's going on here at the moment. BK and I have been talking a bit about the sort of the rumblings, okay, the leadership rumblings mm. within the Nats over Bridget McKenzie and then a few rumblings within Labor over Anthony Albanese. And, and that's all a bit of the grump isn't it? There's just a few people Look, who really, you know, they're just feeling ratty. Yeah, well, if I can you know, use profanity, they've just got the shits with each other. Yes. Uh, <laughs> look, I, I called it low-level grumbling. You know, there's sort of people saying, oh, I don't know if Anthony Albanese is going to, you know, if Albo's going to take us to the election. Oh, he's hopeless. You know, but and there's others saying, just calm down. It's only been five months. You know, <laughs> we haven't even started yet. There's no doubt Labor's just, just still very miserable and traumatised. That will sort of, you expect you know, start to sort of change after the release of their report into what went wrong in the election. That will give the party a template upon which they can now say, OK, this is why we lost and this is what we've got to fix and now we've got to get on with it. That's the test for Anthony Albanese, isn't it? Because he wants to use that report to then talk about the future, labour in the future hmm. and push forward to the future. So that's when his vision thing... Um, hmm. really kicks in and that's when people will be able to judge, particularly within, whether they think he's got the goods and he, he's got the capacity to cut through. It's it's going to start then for him. At the moment, he's just trying to keep a lid on things, really. Well, yeah, a little bit. He's also actually, if you speak to him, he actually doesn't mind everyone having a bit of a run in the top yeah. paddock. He thinks, you know, it's natural yeah. people got a cathar. They need to. Someone says, a Liberal said it to me yesterday, they said, the best way to sum up where Parliament is now is Labor needs to have a fight and we need to find a purpose. <laughs> <laughs> that's great, and isn't that, it? That neatly encapsulates the sort of mood in this building. You know, the, nat the Nationals are sort of back to the old pre-election fault lines, you know, the, the North versus the South. And look, yeah, everyone in the, in the coalition absolutely Love Scott Morrison. He's doing a fantastic job. His his power is absolute. But when a couple of them sort of grizzled to me this week that he's getting becoming a bit too dictatorial, you know, that the godlike complex which he probably deservedly earned after winning that election it hasn't abated. And one of them referred to him as Caesar. I thought, oh, really? Even you're complaining? I said, I think, I think it's just time for everyone to have a holiday. Look, let's mm. talk about one win that Anthony Albanese has mm. had, or let's analyse whether it is a win. I think it, I think it is. <laughs> On the Labor side of things, the construction boss, John Secker, is now out of the Labor Party. They were trying to expel him and then he dropped his effort to try and stop that through the courts. And then, mm. which I thought was pretty extraordinary, did a bit of a, I dumped you first thing. Oh, I dumped yes. you because your elbow is yeah. terrible. Uh, yeah, right, mate. Does that help him? Does that bolster him? Because it's actually, the whole process yes. has been a bit bruising as well. Look, I, I, it has, Patricia, but whenever you sort of ask yourself, you know, does he win or does he lose, just ask yourself the opposite if he'd not been able to get rid of Setka. I mean, that, you know, when a leader puts his leadership on the line and says, I want this man out of the Labor Party and he doesn't go, and every month he stays on, it weakens Albanese's authority, that's a loss. So yeah, by, by getting rid of Seca, and you're right, I mean, Seca jumped before he, he was going to get expelled on Friday, I and mean, he sort of came up with this, I can't work with these people, and stormed off mm -hmm. yesterday um, or on Wednesday. So, so, no, definitely a win for Albanese. And you've got to look at it through the prism of the broader electorate, not the Labor movement. In the Labor movement, obviously, there's the left-wing unions based, you know, coalescing around Victoria who don't like Albo. 
yeah, they're the ones who got up him on the free trade agreement and now this is sort of further grist for that he's not one of us, he's not a union guy. Well, they're not the people who are going to win the election for Labor. The people who are going to win the election, if Labor's going to win, are the people out there who look at John Secker and, and he scares the hell out of them and uh, when they see a character like him, straight out of central casting, you know, the old BLF days. So it can only look good for Albanese to say, look, we don't want this sort of bloke in our party, you know, especially... You know, the union movement itself, you know, it's its, it's fastest growing membership and, and I say that probably its slowest declining membership, mm. but it's it, uh, females, so women, yeah. you know, nurses, nurses union, the missos or the old, what they're called now, but, you know, the services industry, the nurses, uh, the aged care workers, stuff like this. It, it, it's, you know, women are sort of the future of the, of, of the union movement if it's ever going to recover and having people like John Secker around uh, isn't, a, isn't a good recruitment uh, tool. So I think really the union movement probably wins out of it, although he's still there. It's no doubt a political victory for Albanese. The only issue now is how Labor then manages the government attacks, because of course they're using John Setka to morph into, well, you still take a million dollars from the CFMMEU and they're all thugs and that kind of line. And the ensuring mm. integrity bill is coming up. And it's going to go through too. That would almost put my house on it. So with or without John Secker, I think that that bill will go through with Centre Alliance and Pauline Hanson, you know, regardless of what Jackie Lambie decides at the end of the day, but I think she'll back it anyway. So that bill will go through and they can probably thank Secker for that. You've got to have a construction union industry. I thought Albanese made that point quite well. I mean, it's one of the, it is the most dangerous of industries for, for, for workers in terms of deaths and accidents. You've got to have a union there, you know, sort of enfor- helping enforce safety and so forth. But, you know, ultimately it's up to the CFMEU how, how it conducts itself from here on in. I mean, it's clearly on notice. It's brought upon the rest of the union movement this legislation which they they regard as an existential threat, this ensuring integrity bill. I think, Fran, Patricia, I think the pressure on the CFMEU has got to come from the other unions. I mean, they've got to do more. Mm. They've got to put pressure on Secker to, to step down. I mean, he, he's behaving as if he's bigger than the movement itself. At the end of the day, you've got to make a call on these things. He's, he's made them a slow-moving target for the government and... Uh, you know, I don't think Labor should have to really necessarily disaffiliate with the CFMEU, but that union has to sharpen its image. Oh, yeah. God. Has to clean, um, it has to clean up its image. It yeah, just has yeah. to. Yeah, and it's, it's a super just, union yeah. now. Don't forget yeah. up the amalgamation. Mm. So, you know, the mm. ACTU has a job ahead of it. Another issue that's been running this week, not within the political frame but force itself obviously into it, is the Your Right to Know campaign, which was launched mm. by media organisations on Sunday night and then ran on Monday. The government has been resisting. The, the Prime Minister, I thought, took a, a bit of a misstep with one of his answers around this in question mm. time. But Labor has, has really... Uh, tried to ride this wave too. Anthony Albanese has been right on board with, you know, don't criminalise journalism. Is this a political positive for the opposition in any way or negative for the government? Because I think it's unclear yet how much this is biting with the public. Look, I don't know how much it's biting at all, Fran. I mean, as I've written and said, the only sort of profession people loathe more than politicians are journalists. Not all of us, but most of us. Not you two. You're very popular. But um... <laughs> I was going to say speak for yourself. But I I with the exception, of course, of present company. <laughs> yeah, generally speaking. So I th- the clever thing about this campaign, although I'm not sure whether that's permeated yet, is it, it was not about journalists. It was not about, oh, you want, we want you to feel sorry for journos. This was about just letting the public know just how onerous this regime of secrecy is you know, across everything and, and just the stuff that you're not allowed to find out, the basic stuff you're not allowed to find out. You know, like that example about the, the 4,000 plus abuses in nursing homes that happen mm. every year, but you're not allowed to know where they happen or by whom. And if you're putting your mum or dad into a home, you can't check that home's record. I mean, and there's scores and scores of examples like that, this sort of needless, absurd privacy provisions, uh, FOI laws, which are virtually useless, you know, uh, 
uh, heavy-handed defamation laws, mm. the whole thing. We, we are. I don't know if you've, if you've ever worked anywhere else. Australia is much more secretive oh, than yeah. any other sort of comparable society. That sort of works alongside the strategy that Anthony Albanese has been gingering up mm. about Scott Morrison not answering questions. And yes. we've seen that in Senate estimates and Labor's been playing that up. Just the refusal mm. from the senators, or the ministers, fronting up to estimates and saying, I'll take that on notice. Basic things that, of course, they have an answer to. It's not a good look. And these two things can sort of coincide, if you like, and turbocharge yes. one and the other. I'm just not sure that the people's right to know has cut through yet. And no. the government doesn't look like it's feeling under much pressure to me yet over this. But, no, you know, I don't think that are. should no. probably change, I think. You'd hope so. I mean, it's a gradual thing. I think it's incumbent on us now that we've started this campaign is to to continue it insofar as to call this stuff out now rather than just accept it. You know, we've sort of been bludgeoned over the years, if you like, um, to just, oh, you get you lodge an FOI request and, you know, three months later you get back a handful of nothing. I think we sort of should just start calling it out when it happens. And it reflects negatively on this government at the moment because they're the government. But in reality, there's governments of both colours over the mm. years have built up these sorts of laws. Remember Stephen Conroy wanted to Ooh, yeah. regulate the media, didn't he? Pretty much he was so angry with News Limited. So, he was. And in fact, uh, it's interesting you mm. mentioned that, um, Phil, because mm. the Prime Minister used that uh, example mm. in question time mm. this week when mm. Labor started questioning, saying, you've got, you know, you've got the gall yeah. to question us. You're the ones that wanted to regulate the media, right? That, that, that great political defence, we can do it because you did it too. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's exactly right. But uh, look, the, the, the secret... Well, if this thing is to succeed, it's got you've got to energise the public, and I'm just not sure how easy it is to energise the public anymore. They get energised on certain issues, but if you look at Twitter or something, people hate us more than the MPs. They all think we're part of the same crowd. You know, if you, you report a story now, you accurately and faithfully report something the Prime Minister said. You're accused of being a liberal mouthpiece when actually you're doing your job yeah, as a reporter. You interview a yeah. government minister, yeah, yeah, and somehow yeah. you've endorsed their views because you interviewed yeah, them. It's but, quite breathtaking. But again, we're talking about 17% of the population if it's Twitter, but yeah. the whole idea is to get the wider population, just not accept this anymore. But if it wasn't us doing it, I'd wish them luck. Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton, he was again asked about returning ISIS so-called brides mm. in Syria to Australia, and he said it would expose Australians to an increased risk of terrorism. He seems to be really ramping up the rhetoric around all of this. He also indicated that DNA testing would be required to verify citizenship claims made by ISIS brides. There are some people who may claim to be Australian citizens. We don't know whether they are and you would need DNA testing and you'd need other checks to be made. OK, so there you go. Mm. Additionally, he also said he expects the United States to take a further 250 refugees as part of this US-Australia refugee swap. I think it's fair mm -hmm. to call it a swap deal. What did you make of Peter Dutton and, and the kind of positions he's been taking this week? He's, again, playing such a key role in this government. Oh, he is, and uh, his, his, his power is, uh, is very much still a, still a significant part of the government. Short answer, I'm not close enough to, to have a really expert opinion on it. I think, you know, had the government wanted to get these people out, you know, that window was some time ago before Donald Trump committed his sort of various acts of, you know, his, his appalling acts and, 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 and did what he did uh, by giving the Turks the green light to go in. I can understand there must be some legitimate security concerns about going in and getting all these people out, even if journalists can get in there and talk to them. But Yeah, yeah and, and the government had yeah. been asked this by other governments, asked this by mm. the families for months and months. Other governments mm. in that time have managed to get their, some of their citizens out. Mm. As you say, journalists have been in, A groups have been in there. They just haven't wanted to do it. No, clearly, and, and you know, probably, I, I suspect politically, you know, most of the country doesn't, you know, well, you went there, it's your fault, don't don't ask for our help yeah. now is 
I, I suspect is the majority view of the public. I mean, you, you, you've got to feel sorry for the kids. I mean, it's not their fault, but I don't think there's any great, a great deal of sympathy for the, the so-called no. ISIS brides and, you know, there's probably other priorities. So, you know, the government sees no political imperative in going there and getting them out. But you've got to be careful with these things. I mean, they do turn over time. Uh, at the end of the day, they're your responsibility. They're your citizens. Exactly. Uh, and there's a national and security element to it, which has been argued right. by some of the agencies. So. I mean, what would happen should, you know, the Syrians sort of storm through those camps and commit the various atrocities that they're known to commit? I mean, that could then very quickly turn sentiment here. So it's, it's look, ultimately it's the right thing to do, I suspect, to go in and get them. But, um, you know, a lot of things this government does is motivated by whether it's politically the right thing to do as well as whether it's logistically possible. And I'm not close enough to it to know whether it's logistically possible uh, uh, to get them out at the moment, but it seems not. Now, um, yeah, no, that's mm. right. Look, and the other pitch with the 250 refugees was clearly the government trying to get Jackie Lambie's vote on repealing Medivac. Where are we at mm. with that? Thursday morning we're recording. That's the other big story, isn't it? It, it is, but, you know, because the Senate is not sitting, <laughs> it's everything's in abeyance. <laughs> they're, they're going through their estimates process at the moment, which is... Becoming less and less effective, I must say, every time we have estimates. Um, but so we will know uh, they're back, I think, the second week of November. So we'll have to wait till then. There's, same with the Ensuring Integrity Bill as well, um, what the decisions will be. But look, Hanson will support that Medivac bill. I don't think Centre Reliance is, so it does come down to Lambie. I don't know which way she's going to jump, to be honest. Um, I really don't. I think she's more likely to vote on the Ensuring Integrity Bill. I would suspect she may vote against the Medivac repeal just because there's no real evidence around that the Medivac bill has made the situation worse. The government keeps pretending there is, and I thought the minister saying that, was it, was it veterans want it repealed? I don't know where yeah. that came from. Um, I mean, <laughs> she's being lobbied ferociously on this and is she, yes. it's it's causing, you know, she's really thinking deeply about it. I think all the evidence suggests that. So I think you know what you can do? You yet. know what you can do when you're being lobbied? You can make up your mind. Mm. That's the best way to stop the lobbying is to make up your mind. The, the, uh, I mean, you know, you can do it. Um, you know, Centre Alliance has done it. Pauline Hanson has done it. I, I remember, you know, Nick Xenophon used to do this. Oh, oh, woe is me, woe is me, I'm being besieged by lobbyists. We'll make a bloody decision and they'll go away. I mean, it's not that hard. At the end of the day, you can make a decision. You don't have to leave it until the 11th hour. So I'm always a little bit sceptical or cynical about some of these independents who just let the final decision come to them and then they, they sit back on it and... And then, and then start moaning when it all gets too much. You know, it, it's, it's not a hard decision to make, so make a decision. That's funny. Make a decision. Phil Curry, on that note, thanks for being in the party room this week. See you, girls. All right, PK, it's time for questions. Our question this week comes from Kate. Hi, Fran and PK. I was lucky enough to visit Canberra this week. Went to Parliament House, sat in on question time. It was all very exciting. Even got to see PK in the press gallery. My question is, why is it the the government is given the opportunity to question its own ministers to bolster its own achievements. I thought that question time was supposed to be an opportunity for those not in power to hold the government to account. I'd love to hear what you think. Love your show. Bye. Bye. And hi. Thanks, um, I love it that she was so excited to see you in the press gallery, PK. Uh, well, look, I was excited to be there. Yeah, well, I was I was into it, I can tell you. Um, even even during the dull bits where everyone looked like they were going to fall asleep, I was I was raring, Fran. <laughs> look, it's called a Dorothy Dixer, isn't it, Fran? And, and you yeah, know, the opposition gets to ask questions and, and they are trying to hold the government to account often or at least making points uh, about their own views about what they think is government mismanagement. The government side also gets to ask questions, so government backbenchers get to ask questions of their own government. They are called Dorothy Dixers. 
I suppose, you know, theoretically there's the opportunity that they could ask a frank question, but they are planted and they are organised by the government. And, yeah, it's about the government kind of spruiking its wares and selling its agenda. Is it a bad thing? It's kind of a convention. It's always kind of been the way it's happened in the Westminster system, that this is what you see in the House of Commons too, right? Is it good? It's, oh, it's usually tiresome. not good. It's, it's usually not good and it's when question time is at its worst is when that use of the Dorothy Dixer is what I would really call abused by the government of the day and turned instead uh, into just a, a vehicle to attack Labor. And that's happening a lot still. I mean, I find it surprising, PK. Tell me what you think. This government, the Morrison government, is spending an awful lot of time still attacking Labor for its policies it's brought to the last election. I mean, it lost. It's not in government. We shouldn't be talking about their tax plan, I don't think. When Dorothy Dix's work well is in the rare occasions when um, a minister actually brings up something that one of their constituents have brought to their attention. That's good. But also when they use it to make a policy announcement, perhaps uh, a policy statement uh, can work well. But just, you know, long, boring things, you know, saying, you know, why we're great and why they're useless, I just think it really is an abuse of, of, of question time. And it's one of the reasons why I think there's an inquiry into question time going on at the moment, because it's not working terribly well. All right, that's it for the show. Until next time, we will be back next week. We're on Twitter, of course. You can use the hashtag The Party Room. Yep, and you can email us at thepartyroom at abc.net.au. Rate, review and subscribe. Let me just do a bit of a reminder that we love that. helps us, boosts us, and, of course, it's nice to read lovely comments too. I might get on there a little later today and peruse them. If they're not lovely, I'll pretend to ignore them but be secretly hurt. All right, uh, that's it. See you, friend. See you, Pico. Nearly three years in, and despite what he says... There was no collusion. ..the Russia story isn't going away. But for Vladimir Putin, the US election was only part of his plan. A Malaysian Airlines plane has crashed while flying over the eastern region of Ukraine. Criminal investigation for donations made during the Brexit referendum. Russia, if you're listening, has returned for a third season, looking at Putin's grand chess match with the West. Subscribe now on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.